Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-hosts and stars of this show, Mark Wiley and Will George, and this is a day at the yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will. Episode 253 now on the network. Before I pass over the mic to our hosts here, our co-hosts, to introduce our guests, I just want to thank our 43,000 subscribers, three countries now. We added Cuba last week, so we're excited to, to be in that market. I just want to thank you for your support. Uh, continue to download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. Give this give this one a five star. I'll tell you right off the gate, this is going to be a great one today. Give a great review to, to Mark and Will, and we can keep battling the analytics of the podcast world just like we do in baseball sometimes. So uh, with that, guys, uh, Mark and Will, welcome back to your show. Great to be back today, guys. Thanks, Dave. I'm excited about having Ruben on. Yep. I'll let you introduce our guest here. Okay, our guest today is Ruben Amaro, a lifetime baseball man. Um, As you'll see as I read the bio, um, he's had an impact in a lot of places with a lot of people. Um, You know, as I said, he's a lifetime baseball man. He was he's the son of former 11 year major league player and gold glove winner Ruben Amaro Sr., his father. And uh, because of that, his dad playing in the area, he grew up in the Philadelphia Northeast area. He was even a bat boy for the Phillies. That shows how far back he was in baseball. Um, went to William Penn Charter School, graduated from there. Uh, went to college at Stanford University, where he graduated in 1987. Drafted by the California Angels in the 11th round that year. Played in the minor leagues from 88 to 91 with the Angels. Um, he debuted in the major leagues in 91 with the Angels, but was shortly later the next year traded to the Philadelphia Phillies, where he spent 92 and 93 with the Phillies, then traded to the Cleveland Indians, where he spent 94 and 95, uh, 96 briefly with the Toronto Blue Jays, and then finished his career from 96 to 98 with the Philadelphia Phillies again. Um, you know, Ruben has been a champion throughout his entire career. Um, and, and I've always said, you know, you surround yourself with people who know how to do it and are champions. Um, it makes sense. And you can see the impact he's had on a lot of these teams and organizations. In 1993, uh, he won the National League pennant as a player with the Philadelphia Phillies. In 95, he did it again. And it was the American League Championship with the Cleveland Indians. He went to the front office in nineteen in two thousand seven. Uh, he was part of the Northeast <clears throat> North uh, National League East Championship. Uh, two thousand eight, uh, the World Series champion, all with Philly. Two thousand nine, National League Championship with Philly. Two thousand ten, East uh, National League East champion and lost in the NLCS, also with Philly in two thousand eleven. He was, uh, uh, again, part of the Phillies when they they won the National League East Championship. Um, Then we go back to when he was in college. In 1987, uh, he won the NCAA College World Series with the Stanford Cardinals. So you can see that he has a tremendous background as a winner uh, throughout his entire career. So it's not surprising where baseball has taken him. Uh, He's even coached in the big leagues and 2016 and 17, he was a first base outfield base running coach for the Boston Red Sox. And 2018, he was a first base coach and outfield base running coach for the Mets. Uh, his front office experience is extended 
1998 through 2008 as assistant GM in Philadelphia. In 2008 to 15, he was the general manager of the Philadelphia Phillies. And in 2009, he was a special assistant to general manager of the New York Mets. He has a background. He's now, he does broadcasting. Uh, in 2020 to the present, uh, he does Philadelphia's a, a broadcast for the Philadelphia, Philadelphia Phillies, does pregame and postgame also. He's a t- TV analyst for NBC Sports Philadelphia. Um, he had a morning show, WIP morning show in Philly. And in 2022 to the present, he's been working with MLB Network as an analysis, anal- analyst. Sorry. Um, some of the honors and awards he's received in his career is in 2008, he was the American Amateur Baseball Association Hall of Fame. Uh, 2009, he was inducted into the Philadelphia Jewish Sports Hall of Fame. In 2009, he was MLB Executive of the Year. And also that year, uh, the sports writers of Philadelphia uh, elected him as the Executive of the Year. He's done charity work. With, he's been co-founder of the Richie Ashburn and Harry Callis Foundation, which provides camps for underprivileged children in, in the Delaware Valley area. Uh, we're so glad to have you. Um, Ruben, um, with your experience, I had the pleasure of being with you with the Indians. And I know, you know, people always wonder about people that, that back up the superstars. And we had a pretty good lineup about a lineup of 300 hitters with Cleveland, but people don't realize the impact that you and some others had, you know, especially late in the game when you'd come in defensively and, and, and make a play that would actually end up winning the game for us. Well, Wiles, uh, thanks uh, for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you and to can reconnect with you again. And, uh, yeah, we had some fun times in Cleveland and, and will, uh, also will being a life lifer himself. It's, uh, and someone who has, uh, been really super supportive and a good friend, baseball friend for many, many years. Uh, great to be with both you guys. Yeah. This yeah, Ruben, we, you know, I, I mentioned earlier you grew up in Philadelphia as area as, as Will did. And uh, I think Will's got some, you know, throw, throwback time he'd like to talk about. Uh, yeah, but, uh, you, know, you know, being a guy that grew up in Philly, I first heard Ruben's name. My brother worked in scouting and he was singing your praises as a young player. And then, uh, then the connection of one of our earlier guests, Jesse Levis, who's a lifelong friend that uh, when I coached was my catcher in double A and Howie Frailing, who I've known forever. And I always thought it was uh, so neat that you guys who grew up together all ended up working together in Philadelphia and uh, always respected that. And then from the other standpoint, all the years your dad was in the game, he was such a mentor and a wonderful person for me to run into at games and just talk baseball. And uh, I know he had a big impact on you and your life in the game too. Yeah, I mean, I was very fortunate to have, uh, you know, kind of grown up in the baseball world. Uh, obviously, my dad having been an 11-year major league player and then he also going into the, into the front office with the Phillies for many, many years as a, as a, uh, uh, international Latin American uh, coordinator. He was a, he was Dallas Green's assistant in, uh, as a farm assistant farm director. He worked with Paul Owens, et cetera, et cetera. And so he's, 
his mentors were great ones as well. So uh, I was very fortunate to be able to grow up in that world um, and to start it as a bat boy and then move uh, forward and play professional baseball. Uh, I always find uh, that these were, you know, I'm very, 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 very blessed by the opportunities that were created really by my father. And even before that, by my grandfather who played in Cuba and Mexico as a hall of famer and, in both those countries, um, Santos Amaro. And, uh, so baseball has been in our blood. And as far as like growing up in, uh, in Northeast Philadelphia, I mean, pretty special to be able to play with a couple of guys and Howie Freeling and, uh, and Jesse Levis, who, who are really good baseball players and both going to North Carolina, uh, played with those guys, both those guys in, in the same American Legion team, believe it or not, they were just a touch younger than I was, but, um, and then we played triple ABA baseball together and went to Johnstown and Altoona and all those places. So when I had an opportunity to, to be in the, in the, uh, in the mode of being able to hire people uh, in the front office with Philadelphia, I thought it was great to be able to bring those two great baseball player people and friends to the organization. They ended up being really valuable professional scouts for me um, through my tenure with the Philadelphia Phillies. Yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, that's awesome you did that. And, you know, I remember when you first started and got off the field, I actually used to throw BP to you and Jesse and Bobby Higginson over in Cherry Hill all the time in the offseason. That's where I first started to get to know you. But I remember when you first went into the front office and you would travel through the minor leagues and how big of an impact Dallas Green and Paul Owens had on you as well. Yeah, they really were. I mean, uh, my very first assignment, I actually, um, you know, being an assistant GM, um, my very first assignment for myself was to assign uh, Paul Owens and myself to watch games during the course of spring training. We had a couple of teams that I signed myself to and Paul would um, would come with me to the games and I just try to learn from him. Um, I had I had spent some time with him, obviously, as a as a youngster, but you know, you don't really key into a lot of the things, but I got an opportunity to be around Paul Pope quite a bit. And that was an invaluable experience for me. And then uh, having Dallas, you know, Ed Wade ended up uh, hiring both Dallas and, and Pope um, as senior advisors and just having Dallas in the office every day, be able to explain and understand and to listen just by osmosis, man. It was uh, fun to be around those guys. One of my very early assignments a date that actually Ed Wade made, had me do was was uh, go through the process of signing free agents for our minor league teams, Double uh, yeah. A, Triple A, A ball, and uh, Dallas and I worked together in that in that project, and I learned a lot about uh, dealing with agents, a lot about dealing with players, and. Uh, also getting information from scouts and uh, weeding through a lot of different things to try to uh, bolster the organization. But that was also a really invaluable process for me. Yeah. You know, the and then the other guy I can't leave out is Pat Gillick, who's one of the greats, all-time greats in our game too. Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, yeah, for, for, for them to, to be able to let me stay on, uh, once Ed Wade was let go, they brought Pat Gillick in um, to try to get us sort of over the top because we had a club that was actually very good and very talented with an excellent uh, base and foundation. 
Um, and just learning from a Hall of Famer and to, to be able to witness and to work with him as well. I mean, I had a great experience with Ed Wade. I think he's a very underrated, was a very underrated uh, executive. He did a lot of great things for the Phillies and the Houston Astros uh, before leaving both those teams yeah. in very good shape. I mean, and those are teams that he, he was the basis for for uh, having a lot of success for both those organizations. But, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll add in, I, I think he started Lunau's rebuild and did a hell of a job at it. He sure did. No. I mean, there's guys, you know, El Tuve and uh, so yeah. many different players that they drafted. I don't know Springer. off the top of my head. I, I can't think of all of them, but he really brought in a ton of players that yeah. he's, you know, drafted and developed. Uh, much like he did with the Phillies and guys yep. like Utley and Rollins, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. Pat, uh, Pat was a, Pat was a really good baseball man and he was a good communicator. And, uh, I know he, he actually traded for me with Toronto when I was with San Diego, he traded for me. And, uh, I'll never forget the first game I pitched in. It was against, uh, it was against the Yankees. I threw a couple shutout innings, and and he the next day he was uh, down there by the by the dugout, and he was he he made me feel really special, you know. And uh, not everybody does that. Yeah, and that's that was sort of his calling card. I mean, he really understood not just uh, how important it was to to the the people that work immediately with you, but also the people that um, you know. He believed in people. Uh, baseball players and baseball people as people, and uh, he, he he believed in, and valued in uh, every person who was involved, and I think that that was, and he treated everybody, um, he treated everybody equally, um, and that was the the real cool thing about Pat, and that's why he was such a great fit in Philadelphia. I think. You know, you you've been you've been with some tremendous ball clubs throughout your career. Um, and then by the time you became a general manager, what were some of the things that you learned by being around those really good clubs that uh, that you used to put together your clubs? And Wiles, as you, as you as you can imagine, you know, just sitting on the bench, if you uh, if you really want to be a student of the game, you can learn a lot. And uh, and I had an opportunity, obviously, as you said, to play on some great teams in '93 and '95. Um, and, uh, even 94 before the strike hit and, and, uh, also saw some really terrible teams and played for some very terrible teams in 92 and, and, and other years. And I think, um, and I got a chance to witness, you know, the great teams in Atlanta with the pitching that they had and won 14 straight division titles, um, you know, I think if you observe enough and you, uh, you know, you, you listen enough and watch enough and you really are a student of the game, you can learn a lot about what can work and what doesn't. Um, I always believed in, um, in winning people and winning players, winning staff, winning coaches, winning leaders. Um, I think there's a, there is a, it's a real thing. Um, I think, it's not just about the numbers. It's about the people and understanding who are the people that can lead people to greatness and the people that can help build greatness. And, uh, and I think that that was a real valuable lesson for me as I decided to make decisions. I mean, 
pitching always seems to be the most important thing and always was the most important thing. I got to witness that with the Atlanta Braves playing against them for years with Gav, Glavin, Smoltz, um, Maddox, et cetera, et cetera, and just watching those guys dominate for years and years. And then, you know, I got a chance to watch guys like Schilling and, and uh, played against guys like, uh, you know, some of the greatest pitchers in, in, in all of baseball. And Randy Johnson and and even guys like Nolan Ryan. And so I always felt like pitching was the thing. If you had pitching and you had defense, you had a chance to win. And I think that was the two most important parts of well, what it is to be a winning ball club is pitching and defense. If you can do that, it's almost like having like a great, you know, great set of linesmen, uh, either offensively and defensively. You can you got a chance to win every single football game if you can win it in the trenches. And I think that's exactly what I – how I would equate, you know, pitching and defense in baseball. Yeah, you always did a good job of acquiring to, you know, getting Roy Holiday to add into your what you had, which brought you, took you over the hump and adding Cliff Lee and guys like that. And Roy Oswalt, um, you know, you knew, you know, from a from a distance watching you, you and Pat and the people that were around you knew how to fill in the blanks that were going to get you where you needed to get to. Yeah. And I think, and even a guy like Pedro Martinez, I, 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 I think that's, you know, it's a, that's a, was sort of a under the radar kind of one, even though Pedro Martinez is never really under the radar. No, I just felt like having a guy like that and having his presence would give us, um, you know, would give us a little something extra, you know, it would make us marginally better. And, and just to have his knowledge and experience, around i think and and to have some even some of our great pitchers cole hamels of the world um learn from him and how he attacked hitters and how, how he went about his business i think that all filters down and makes up makes for a positive setting yeah that's right i forgot you acquired him what for like the second half and he definitely made an impact down the stretch and in the playoffs and just be, his presence as you said is uh you know you know, so, you know, so much, and we talk all the time on here, Ruben, the people that you were around and the wisdom that you you were gaining from them over the years, your playing years, your coaching, your scouting, your, your front office, it, it's just, you know, wisdom is wisdom in this game. And, uh, you know, and, you know, we see it getting pushed aside, which is sad. Yeah, it is unfortunate because uh, experience and wisdom seem to be a four-letter word in the game today, and that's a, that's unfortunate because you would think that the people who are – they're not dummies who are taking over teams, but they don't really quite understand the importance of having people with knowledge and wisdom and experience um, and utilizing them. I think the best executives in the game also understand uh, the things that they don't know. Uh, right. It's really important to know what you don't know. Um, yeah. I would not claim to be an analytics uh, expert, a data expert. Um, and I would have to be, you know, I would like to be schooled in that area with people who have, have great knowledge. And I would think the same thing for people who, who don't have a knowledge of the game and what it's like to be in the clubhouse and what it's like to be a champion and what it's like to stand in the box or stand on the mound and when you have to make a pitch or, or make a play, um, you would think that uh, the people in this day and age would uh, would welcome that knowledge and and, and uh, utilize that in some way, shape, or form. But you see that happening less and less, unfortunately. 
Yeah. Talk to the balance of that. I mean, we're, we're seeing it way out of whack right now, leaning toward the side of analytics. What, what's in your mind, what's the proper balance of the two things, analytics and, and old school? I think information, whether it's analytics or uh, whether it's understanding the game, I think it all it, it, it's all important. All of it. Um, uh, I, I I mean, I I did not have a super big handle on um, the big data that is utilized now and the intricacies of it. But we also, I mean, the very first thing that a scout does is he grabs the stat book when he walks in, when he walks, when he walks into the, into the, into the, um, into the ballpark. I mean, it's the first thing he looks at. Okay. How many strikeouts per inning? How many, uh, does this guy make contact? Does this guy get on base? I mean, these are things that the scouts like to have knowledge of. Now that there's a, there's a breakdown in the data that has gotten so, um, I mean, they've got it down to the metadata that is, uh, you know, it, it is so intricate now that it's gotten to the point where I think that we've taken the ability to evaluate players and winners. Um, I think we've taken it to a level that, uh, that is detrimental to baseball. Uh, we have to remember that, you know, these are athletes. These are, these are people. These are not uh, tools or widgets. And it's important to understand like the psyche of a player, um, how he responds in stress because it's such a negative game, uh, how he handles, uh, failure, how, um, you know, how they deal with that, how they can rebound from that and, and their ability to do that because the great ones, that's what they do. The great ones know how to handle failure at a rate that nobody else really can do. And so when you can identify people who can do that, I think that sets you apart from other people. And I think that's, as far as the balance is concerned, I mean, I just, I just feel like um, every part of the game, uh, whether it's a medical piece of information, whether it's a piece of data that you're getting from, you know, a player's output or the way he plays the game of baseball, all of those things matter. But I don't think that we can um, I don't think that we can just purely evaluate players on just the data. You just can't do it. It's well, not it's fair. Right. It's not fair to the game and it's not fair to the player. Well, put. to me, there's, you know, the, the too much information is a real thing. Oh, uh, yeah. When you talk about finite uh, information, knowing contact a guy make, you know, like I don't really need to know that the guy hit the home run and was 105 miles an hour and went into the stands. Um, I, you know, it, there's old saying, you know, it's, it's not how far it's, it, it's how many when you're That's talking right. about home runs and uh, you know, that goes, you can add that to uh, miles per hour. You know, it doesn't really matter as long as it goes out of the ballpark. And th- these are some of the things that analytics, it bothers me is that they start to put, too much emphasis on some of the real finite things that don't really matter in the course of the game. When you're talking, like you said about personalities and stuff, um, you know, there's people, I, I used to keep track of what situations my pitchers responded best in, you know, like some pitchers do really well if they start an inning, but they do terrible if you bring them in the middle of an inning other way. And then other guys are really good in the middle of an inning, but they're not so good starting an inning, you know, like, that's information where I want to know, you know, and, you know, it used to be this, I laugh now because 
closers. You know, closers used to be the guys that wanted to be in that situation. It didn't matter what kind of stuff they had. You know, there's been pitchers with almost no stuff that have been unbelievable successful closers because they could make pitches. They understood, you know, they could evaluate hitters' swings and where they were in the box and what they were trying to do, and they just dominated them. Now we have even closers that it's all based on stuff. It's all stuff. You know, as a pitching coach, I always believe that, hey, I don't want any of my relievers walking anybody from the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning on when I got to leave. I don't want guys that are wild. I don't want wild guys at the back end of the bullpen. You see it all over baseball now. These guys have tremendous velocity and spin rates, breaking balls that go off the table, but they can't throw them over the plate. And they think, oh, it'll be great. We'll put them at the back end. Makes no sense to me. Yeah, the essence of of pitching has been lost in so much that, you know, I still believe in my heart of hearts that the most effective pitch in baseball is a well-placed fastball. Because if a player knows and he can go to a pitch that he knows he can place in the strike zone or out of the strike zone in the right spot, that to me is the most effective pitch. You started talking about um, some of the closers. I faced Jeff Brantley. I faced John Franco. Those guys didn't light it up. Those guys could pitch, and they never threw a ball. I mean, even Lee Smith at the end of his career, he didn't have a blazing fastball, but he figured out a way to like backdoor a slider and get you out. And so to me, um, you know, to me, it's about pitching. It's not necessarily about stuff. Of course, you want guys with great arms, but the reality of it is if you don't place your fastball or your slider or whatever, you know, primary, secondary pitches that you have, if you don't command those pitches, then, then it's very difficult for you to, to close out a game because the worst thing you can do is give free passes. My dad used to talk about that all the time. Same thing you were talking about, Wiles. Is you can't have guys come into a game who are in the bullpen who do not throw the ball over the plate. The last thing you want is a guy that coming in the game in the seventh, eighth, or ninth inning and walk somebody. And then that happens very often because guys are just relying on their stuff and the swing and miss. The other part of the game that, that is astonishing just completely astonishing with the with the talent and the ability and the quickness and the strength of some of the hitters and the and the knowledge and the adjustments that they can make is how much actual swing and miss there is in this game. Right. I don't get it. I don't understand why a guy like Luis Arise is not more highly valued. The man right. creates stress for a pitcher because he's exactly. on base. He <laughs> creates stress because he gets hits. And a guy like Tony Gwynn in this day and age would probably not be valued all that high, which is crazy to me. Or yeah, even I mean, Wade Boggs or someone like that who actually makes contact and gets on base. I don't. I, I still hear people talking about Luis Arise as not being a great player. Are you kidding? You know, it's, you it's know, insane for me to think that way. For people you know, to, to think that way. To that point, you know, uh, DJ Lemayu. You know, when the Yankees first signed him. Signed him for two two years at twelve million a year. To me, he was much higher valued than that for just how good of a hitter he was. He was a he was a pain in the ass for whoever was pitching against them every at bat. Totally agree because he had plate coverage. He could drive the ball to the opposite field. He used the he used was you know gap to gap hitter. Uh, you, there was no place there was no place a pitcher could go at his prime. There was no place a pitcher could go where he could consistently get him out 
And so, and so, yeah, I, I totally agree that he signed that two-year deal for $12 million originally. Um, now, the later contract, I did not understand yeah. because he was an older player. I, yeah, but, he had gotten but, older. Yeah, and, and he's, a different, he's a different player now. But that said, at his prime, he, he was as good a contact guy as you can get, and he could drive the ball to the right side of the field, which was very dangerous in a ballpark like, uh, like they have in the Bronx. Well, and, and, and the other thing that we talked about earlier from a chemistry standpoint and a student of the game and caring about his teammates and, you know, he would, you know, hey, this guy tips his curveball. This guy, you know, he he was that guy in the dugout, uh, just an unbelievable teammate. So for his value to fall to $12 million and then the Yankees actually look like geniuses on you know, I always remind people, well, you know, it wasn't like they signed him to a $30 million a year contract when he when he was in the MVP voting and won the batting title, too. So, right. Right. Well, yeah. you know, I was lucky enough. To, I played with Rod Carew. I know the impact he had on a game and and the impact he had on the rest of the guys um, that that play um, on his team and. And I saw Kenny Lofton, what Kenny Lofton did with the Cleveland Indians. I mean, Correct. he ran havoc. You know, how many times did we come back in the ninth inning when Kenny got on base? He got on base and it totally disrupted the closer. And then it allowed Albert Bell, it allowed Jim Tomey and Manny Ramirez to do their thing because it put, they made more mistakes because they're worried about that guy. And, uh, you know, I mean, today's world, they, they, I, I totally believe what you said. There's a problem. There's a real problem with uh, understanding that, that uh, the value that these guys have. And you go into, well, go, I mean, go ahead. People stopped, people stopped, people stopped uh, thinking about role players. And I think some of the rule changes in that has sort of started the process of getting back to where, I think baseball should be. It's not quite there yet. Uh, there's just way too much strikeout still and way too much swing and miss. But as far as like playing the game and having role players actually be role players, it's table setters, guys who are uh, run producers who score runs and run producers who drive in runs. How about when, how about when runs scored and RBIs became something that was not all that important? I mean, to me, that was the most that's the most, that's the craziest thing I can even imagine to think of. Like, that's the whole point of the game is to score runs or to prevent runs. And so if I'm scoring runs or driving in runs, isn't, doesn't that make me a productive baseball player? Um, and doesn't that make me a winning type of a baseball player? So, I mean, people started talking about, well, you know, RBIs are independent of, uh, you know, other well, BS. To me, it's about to me, it's about whether you drive runs in and create more runs, which creates less stress on your pitcher, which also creates more stress on the on the opposing pitcher. I mean, it's just it's common sense, and it just seems like common sense is not all that common anymore. No, and, no. I, and then on the on the pitching side, Ruben chasing nothing but swing and miss, and not realizing that weak contact and quick innings with low pitch counts actually makes your team a better team. Yeah. Can you, you know? imagine, you can imagine not wanting a ground ball for a double play. Yeah. I mean, it, I just, I, I just, it, I'd rather get two outs in one pitch than right. one out in five pitches. <laughs> right. It, 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 it's insane that, you know, you, you sit and you, and, and this incessant 
shape to widen the breaking balls for swing and miss. Whereas if you throw it for a freaking strike and you stay off the barrel and it's a weak ground ball or a weak pop-up and you only throw one or two pitches to each hitter, now you save your bullpen, you save your starters. It's just, you know, I, it's, it, it's, it's crazy. I did, a lot of studying, I did a lot of studying uh, on hitting because I had to try to make myself the best hitter I could be. I was not – I got moved out of the infield uh, in, in a fairly young age in, in professional baseball after signing with, with the Angels and had to move to the outfield. So I had to do two things. I either had to run the bases really well or I had to, or I had to be a really good hitter because I didn't have a lot of natural power. I just wasn't a big person. So – so I studied hitting a lot and making contact and putting the ball in play. I was a switch hitter. And so I had to do the things that, that were necessary for me to get to the big leagues and be an impactful player. And so I studied a lot, uh, did a lot of studying on Wade Boggs. And all he talked about really was, you know, pitcher's job was to take the timing and disrupt the timing of the hitter. And if I could put myself in a position to minimize, you know, to maximize my margin for error when I hit, and to keep the barrel in the strike zone as long as I possibly could, then I had a much better chance of making like consistent contact. That thought process doesn't exist anymore. Now the thought process is how hard and high, how high can I hit it? Yeah. And it's not about how often can I hit it on the barrel, but how high can I hit it on the barrel and how hard? And so that, that, that minimizes your, margin for error and and that's why you have so much swing and miss and that's where that's where the game gets disappointing for me because it just becomes less and less entertaining when you have guys not making contact i mean that was the whole point of the game of baseball is that you had made contact so guys could make plays so pitchers could stay in game so so you could watch guys run around the bases and you can watch you know guys make defensive plays and um you would hope that at some point you know, that, that comes back at some point, but, uh, but we'll see. It still remains you know, to be like seen. On a given night now, you go to a game and there's 12 strikeouts, 14 flyouts, yeah. and like, like two ground balls hit the game and you're going, holy crap. I mean, you know, I, you know it's like it, it, it's tough to evaluate infield defense now because nobody hits the ball on the ground ever. So in 2019, uh, uh, Will, I actually um, got a chance to scout. That was a part of my assignment yeah. as a uh, with the with the Mets, and I had the National League. And there were on more than two or three occasions, and this is hard for me to imagine, where we would go through an hour of baseball, three or four innings, and the ball would not be put in play. Right. Yeah. It would either be a walk or a strikeout, and no right. one would put the ball in play. And I looked around and saw, you know, I thought how can the fans be enjoying any of this? There's nothing yeah. to be entertained by. Right. And I, and, and it dawned on me that, 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 that that's all they cared about was a home run, a strikeout or a walk. And to me, that's not baseball. I re, I think, I think back to the time when my dad was managing in, in, in winter ball and one of the pitchers couldn't throw a strike. And he finally came out. I was playing second base and he said, he said to the pitcher, he was a he was a prospect for the Detroit Tigers, and we were playing in Venezuela. And he said, uh, "You know, you're being very selfish." And he couldn't understand what he was. <laughs> the pitcher couldn't understand. He said, "Well, why am I being selfish?" He said, "Well, everybody here wants to play. There's eight or nine guys out of here who want to play, so throw the ball over the plate so everybody can play." Yeah, right. No, that's exactly Stop being right. So selfish. 
Yeah, you're right, because I, I remember going, even when I watched the organization when I was with the Rockies, and I, you know, I was focused on the pitching, but, you know, I'd see players on other teams that I'd heard were really good infielders or or maybe one of our prospects that played short or second, and, and I would kind of zero in on them. And I'd go like five innings, and I never got a ground ball. Yeah, I go, yeah. you know, and I I get a call from player development director. He says, "Hey, while you were in there watching the pitching, what did you think of so and so?" And I said, "Never saw a ball hit to him." And they go, "You got to be kidding me!" I said, "No, it's unbelievable." Well, he had a hell of a setup. He had a great yeah, setup. Yeah, he had a good setup. <laughs> He's got that little jump he does just at the right timing. Right. But, uh, you know, Will mentioned chemistry. Um, and I know it's a word that people throw around a lot, especially with championship clubs. Um, what's your opinion on on how a team can achieve that? You know, I think it really kind of starts from the top. Um, but I think it also starts from within. I think part of it is having some natural leaders in the clubhouse. I always believed that if I ever got an opportunity, and managing was one thing that I had, uh, it was one goal that I would love to have achieved as a, uh, as a, as a professional baseball person. Um, I never got an opportunity to do that, but I always believe that they, um, the leadership, um, the best and most effective leadership comes from within. And, uh, and I think about Clint Hurdle and how he handled some of these things. You know, Clint Hurdle was one of those guys I think that would, um, would sort of assign like a group of leaders. And I always believe that like, if there was a leader on the field as an everyday position player, a leader on, in the clubhouse as far as the starting pitchers are concerned, and a leader in the bullpen, I think if you had one leader from each one of those areas, I think you had a really good jump start on, uh, on being able to motivate teams in the proper way. Jim Fergosi did an amazing thing with Darren Dalton, who was the greatest leader I've ever been around, um, and he basically championed him to be the guy. He picked the right guy because he had the hammer, and um, and I think I think part of it is is uh, being able to recognize and identify the guys on the field that will be able to help motivate the team and move the team forward and and have the create that culture. But in my mind, if you really want to tr- create culture in an organization, it has to start from the bottom, from the very first time they hit your organization. The very first people that touch your player or interact with your players need to be the best people as far as creating that culture. This is what we have. This is the expectation. I think of Roly DeArmas from the Philadelphia Phillies, who's been in the GCL for a hundred years. He's a guy that, that once that is there to champion and create the culture that is necessary. I get it. Every single player is caring, worried about himself and getting to the big leagues. That's the nature of the business. That's the nature of the beast. That's the nature of being an athlete. That's the nature of being an American. But to me, if you can meld the real goals, which is to win baseball games, with the same goals of trying to create a major league or help a guy get to the major leagues, if you have the ability to do that, then you're doing that better than anybody. And that, and if you can do that consistently – then you're putting together a nice organization. I always believed in, and I thought about this in the Phillies way when I was a GM, that our job as as developers, as people in the minor league, scouting, whatever the case may be, is to try to develop championship players and championship people, people who want to and have the desire to win. And if you can, the only time you can really do that is when they first come into the organization because – 
that's the that's the best place and best time to influence them because once they're in double A, triple A, major leagues, they're on their own. You know, it's like it's like raising kids. You know, you can only take them so far, and then they have to make their own decisions in life. And and to me, that's the best way to do it is to is to hammer it at the very beginning from the first time they sit set uh you know from the first time they sign their contract those are tremendous points and on dalton uh he helped me get a ring in 97 with the marlins when yep. uh david called me and said uh you've you've covered a lot of the phillies how big of an impact would dalton be and i just said huge just you know watching what he did in 93 and i've shared some stories some where he challenged that star-studded clubhouse and some of those guys every day once he came over there to Miami and uh, said, this is my last chance to win a World Series ring. And he got it. God God rest his soul. And I think Jim Leland was very appreciative of that. Oh. It took a lot of heat off of him because it he, came he, from within. He, it has so much impact on, on yeah, a player. There, there's a story where he challenged one of the stars and – Leland was in the office going, yes, yes, <laughs> and told him he was going to kick his ass every day till the end of the season till he played hard. And so. it's a very and it's a very rare and it's a very rare moment when a guy comes from another organization to do that. But at that point in his career, you know, Dutch knew he was done. It didn't matter. Um, he was playing for that team. He was wearing that uniform. So why not make as much impact as he possibly could? And that's why he did it. Night. Uh, it's funny you should say that because I was a fan of both those teams, one for Dutch and the other one because it was the Cleveland Indians. I uh, In 97, I actually had a ton of friends on both teams. Charlie Nagy was one of my best friends yeah. in baseball yeah. and then, you know, Tommy and all the rest of those guys. But I got a chance to sit in that uh, clubhouse after they won a chance, snuck into that clubhouse in, my, in uh, Miami. And had a cigar and a beer with uh, with Dutch and and uh, got got to enjoy that moment with him because yeah. he was such a special friend. <clears throat> yeah, you know those those kind of players. I mean, usually position players are the lead guy. Like you said, you'll have a guy in each area. You'll have a starting pitcher. You'll have a bullpen guy. You'll have a everyday player. Um, you know, once in a while, it, it's funny that a pitcher is that guy. You know, like Pedro was that way with with uh with Boston you would say he was probably the main leader and gave the whole club the chemistry and the confidence to win I remember Bumgardner with San Francisco I remember when I was I was around the the ball clubs and I'd talk to people and they go they go oh yeah even as a young guy like his first year they said Bumgardner would call guys out all the time about that's not how we do it that's not how we do it and then he backed it up and uh you know, so even pitchers can do it. I mean, Jeter is a perfect example of a day player with the Yankees. All those guys kind of took on his way of doing things professionally, you know, respecting the other team, not showing people up uh, and being a winner on the field every day. So, like, you're right. You got to have some people, the right people to really achieve chemistry. You can't just talk about it. Yeah, I mean, it can't just be lip service. And, and people talk about, you know, leadership all the time, but you know, people don't act. I mean, people people are full of shit when they say, oh, well, leadership. It's it's about acting. It's not it's not it's not lip service. It's it's no. an actual action. Um, right. And action. I, I, there's a very few people have the balls to do it these days. And 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 it's a, it's a very rare moment when you get a guy who um, 
who is has the who has the balls to be able to to command that kind of respect. You know, you you've you've done a lot about you talk about the game a lot now as a as a an analyst and broadcaster. You know, what are some of the things that you miss about being closer to the field? You know, when I went down, actually, you know, I, one of my greatest moments was being able to put that uniform back on, man. When I, when I got let go by the Phillies as the GM and, and uh, people were just could not believe that I would you know, stoop so low, quote unquote, to, uh, to take a job as a first base coach with the Boston Red Sox. But I'll tell you, that was one, unequivocally one of the most wonderful moments and times that I've had in 16 and 17. We ended up winning two division championships, which had never been done. Uh, by the Boston Red Sox at the time. I got to work with phenomenal people. Um, I got to, you know, it was a great organization. Um, you know, I watched it, witnessed Big Poppy's last year. He almost had an MVP type season. You talk about leadership and, and mentorship and stuff and watch him teach guys like Bogarts and Betts and so many others how to play baseball, how to be a winning player. Uh, pretty, pretty extraordinary. Um, pretty extraordinary moments for me. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking so much that I forgot the original question, but my, but, but, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's about, you know, it, there was nothing like putting on a uniform and enjoying the game and being able to witness the game at the ground level again. Um, and it really gave, opened my eyes as to what was important to the player, what, um, you know, what it still took to be a winning team and uh, and the culture that was necessary to have to, to be a winning uh, ball club. Yeah, it's a it's 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 fun. It's fun to be on the field. Um, I know a scout told me one time, he said, the farther away you get from the field, the game, the easier the game gets. <laughs> that's true, too. That's true, too. Yeah, you and, realize. And I, <laughs> and I thought that's true because you sit there, well, why didn't he throw that pitch there? Yeah. You know, like yeah. he had the guy ready to get it out, and you, you don't, you start to forget about human error, you know? Yeah. <laughs> no, you realize how, yeah, you, you, cer- you certainly realize how difficult, again, when you get down to the ground level, how difficult the game is. Um, used to, I used to, um, get get a kick out of spending time with guys like Rick Porcello when he wasn't pitching and just sitting there and, and listen to him and interact with him, uh, who had a great Cy Young type year, one of those years, and watch him compete and to really dissect the game. Um, it was just fun to watch. Uh, and, and also I, I watched in awe because I, you know, I realized like, how really good these players are and how really difficult the game is. You know, I, I really think that there should be a coach on every team that his, his only, his only responsibility is during the game is to sit there and talk about the game. You know, it's gotta be somebody that's been around the game and coached and played and understands the game's not the most difficult thing in the world because these players can make it really hard on themselves. And uh, I was lucky enough. The reason I say that is because I was lucky with the Rockies for a few years ago. Um, they allowed me, Major League Baseball allowed me to be on the bench. Um, or maybe they didn't allow me. Maybe I snuck out there. But <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, a director of pitching operations. So I would sit kind of around the pitchers and we'd be watching the game and I'd be talking about, you know, now is when you make the guy put the ball in play. I said, you've got him. Uh, he, he, he can't 
he can't predict anything you're going to throw. You're ahead in the count. This is where you just make a pitch. You don't make a Hall of Fame pitch. You just make a pitch and get him out. And the pitchers started paying attention to it. And they'd start yelling out to the field of the pitcher on the field. And and I'm going, you know, like they they make the game so difficult. They try to miss the bat all the time and they forget about just getting the guy out. And it's the same thing with hitting. If you had a guy that was versed in pitching and hitting and he could sit there on the bench to where players could come and sit next to him and talk to him about things because, you know, coaches are coaching. You know, it's it's hard for a coach uh, of a particular area to be able to do that during the course of a game. He can address the situation, but they, you know, just talking the game, it's hard to do during the game unless that's your primary job. And I think every co- every team would be better off having a veteran guy that just sits there no, and talks right. about Partic- the game. That's a great idea. And particularly at the minor league level where they've hired so many people to do so many different things. You can't tell me that a pitch designer or someone who is a swing designer can <laughs> tell you in a certain situation what the pitcher's trying to do, what he's had success doing during the game. Is he is he watching him? He knows he can't throw a slider for a strike. He can only throw his fastball for a strike to one part of the plate. Is that person noticing these things? I don't no. think so. So no, to me, or, or like breaking down the situation, I need to drive this ball to the right side of the field to move the runners. I'm looking for a pitch that I can pull. I'm looking for a pitch of two, with two outs and a man on first to drive, to try to drive the run in. I'm trying to make contact. I'm trying to make the good out, the bad out. Understanding all those things are invaluable. And nobody talks about any of that stuff anymore, I guarantee you, because nobody, none of, first of all, people don't know it. They have people running the game who don't know shit about it. And then number two, and number two, it's it's not valued. And yet when they want to win a game or win the World Series and you have to have a situation, you have to have a pitcher try to get a sinker to, for, to, to get a ground ball for a double play, or you have to have a hitter hit behind the runner to, to move, you know, to move a runner double jeopardy, drive in the run and move the guy from second to third. They have no idea how to, what it takes to do that. Um, because it's not talked about and it's not developed and it's not tried. Now, let me get this straight. So you're saying a veteran guy who actually watches the game and injects wisdom to the players is more beneficial than three kids with iPads who never watch the game and have the guys all looking at iPads and missing what's happening? That is correct. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that's clear because that's what I watch every night. Nobody because, watches the game. Be, because Everybody's watching the game. IPad. So, so the one cool thing about what I've noticed about what the Phillies did, did, do and what happened when I was with the New York uh, Mets. So with the New York Mets, I was the first base coach. I guarantee you that I could walk into the bench and there would be not one player on the bench watching the baseball game. They were all underneath watching their videos of their last several at-bats. Right. What I have noticed with some of the teams that I have now broadcast with, with the Phillies, is those guys stand out there and watch the games and sit on the bench and talk to each other about what the pitcher's doing. I see Kyle Schwarber and Real Muto and, you know, all these guys, Bryson Stott and Alec Bohm, and guess what? They're talking the game. You know why these guys like each other? Because they stay around and watch the game and support each other on the bench. And they learn about the game. They watch the pitcher. They're not, they're not playing a video game during the game. They're playing the game on the field. 
And the teams that do that, one, they have a greater camaraderie because they're all pulling for each other and helping each other. Right. And two, and two, they 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 learn how to play the game. You know, I thought they were going to do away with the iPads and the freaking bench. No, well, they um, have they they now. They put the iPads on the bench because they feel like they'll at least stay on the bench instead of going back into the video room. Right. And totally yeah. disassociating themselves from the game. Yeah. It's, it, this kind of leads to, I mean, I, I guess you've already covered it, but the, you know, the game's changed in a lot of ways. You know, what are some of the things you, you probably feel should have been left alone or brought back? Right. <laughs> How much time do we have? I just, I just feel like um, I, I actually do believe that the pitch timer is a great thing. Yep. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's helped. It's sort of like taking some of the thought out of the game. <laughs> Guys just uh, don't don't get to think as much, um, and they just go play uh, a little bit more than they had in the past. Um, and I think that that's uh, created more entertainment for the fans. It also has made it more difficult to, for pitchers to just reach back and just maximize every single pitch. And so, you know, I think you're seeing a little less strikeouts, although they're still striking on a pretty high rate. But they're not – they can't be as nearly as um, max effort as they used to be because the pitchers have to get on the mound and fire. And so I think that's that's helped a little bit. Um I just feel like, uh, and, and the banning of the shift, I had a different thought about it. I always felt like if they're, if they're not allowed to shift, then that's going to reward the guy who is trying to swing from his ass and still drive the ball out of the ballpark. Well, he misses it and he pulls it into the hole to hit. Um, and my understanding was, and, and, and uh, Will, you, you would know this better than me, but I did talk to some, some scouts from the, who I have relationships with still, but it seemed like, over the last couple of years, some of the guys in the minor leagues are starting to hit against the ship, trying to hit the ball the yeah. other way, trying to yeah. do some things. And then they banned it. So now the idea of, you know, utilizing the whole field, I don't know. It's sort of, it, you don't, there's no advantage to doing it now because they've sort of banned the ship. But that said, um, I just don't, I, I could never understand why the value of the stolen base went through the shitter. Yeah. I don't understand. Well, Oma, what a revelation getting an extra 90 feet. Can you imagine getting an extra 90 feet and having it be, make an impact on the game? I mean, I can't believe that. Like, like yeah. why would like, that ever be? Why would, why would, why would people ever stop wanting to do that? Uh, Mark, I mean, Mark it, and I are pitchers from the seventies when they stole bases, the extra pressure it puts on you to have to hold runners and make pitches, be a little quicker to home plate, throw over, hold the ball, do all this stuff, you're going to make more mistakes. You know, uh, you know, our 07 team, Ruben, that, you know, we got to the World Series, we made a concerted effort to go get Jesus Tavares, Kaz Matsui, Jamie Carroll. We ran the bases. We stole. That became part of our game. You guys had it with Utley and Rollins. Uh, J- Jason Worth, Victorino, yep. we yep. knew that we had to hold runners against you guys. That's part of the game. Utilize all the game gives you. Hit and run, bunt, stolen bases. That's the beauty of the game. What Did, did people forget that the Kansas City Royals won a World Series because they could run the bases well? 
Yeah. And, I mean, do people did people not did they don't they don't remember that? I mean, and nobody the remembers Cardinal teams. The old Cardinal yeah. teams. Yeah. I mean, it just doesn't make any it just doesn't make any sense to devalue something that was such a valuable tool. Like, you don't want Ricky Henderson to steal second and third and be on third base with less than two outs to put the heat on the freaking pitcher to make a pitch because you know your starting pitcher is throwing up zeros. I mean, I don't get it. You know, you always say, I always teach the pitchers that, you know, when you got a guy on first, you're only one pitch away from a double play. Correct. And, and if you got nobody running, I can really focus on getting that double play ball. Right. You know, I don't have to worry about the guy running. I'm going to get a double play ball, and I'm going to get two outs, and I'll be out of here. No, yeah. it's, it's crazy. You know, just – doesn't make any sense sometimes just when you no. watch it. And, you know, Ruben, it was funny. You were talking about the the shift thing. I remember when it first started, really every team started doing it. And Jason Stark called me one day. He goes, how do you succeed against a shift? I said, well, if you had a lineup with nine David Ecksteins, you would be losing seven to nothing with no outs, and they would go back and, and play the game straight up. Yeah, <laughs> you right. know, that's I right. mean, you know, that's, right. that, that's the bottom line. They're giving you what about sixty yards of open field to hit a ball through? Well, so you know, cra- I guess so. So crazy story. I mean, I, I I actually was with the Mets, and we had a couple of young players who were real good players, and I was playing Pepper with Gary DeSarcina, playing Pepper, just yeah. he and I. Before we threw, uh, before we went to BP, and you know he's in a, and a couple of guys walked. I'm not going to name names. He, a couple of guys walk over and say, "What are you guys doing?" Well, we're playing Pepper. And then they tried to play Pepper. These guys could not take the barrel to the ball and hit a one hop ground ball back at me. Couldn't do it. Didn't have the ability to take the barrel and use it with their hands and hit the ball and create a one hop bouncer there's the the idea of having any kind of bat control anymore does not exist because all they work on is a swing plane that is the same every single time irregardless of your ability to control the barrel so my my the, the very first thing that i my dad ever my dad wasn't a great hitter but he knew baseball and he could instruct and he said well ruben the only thing that holds the bat are your hands. <laughs> that's the only thing that's attached to the bat. So why wouldn't you use your hands to manipulate the bat? Well, goddamn, that's exactly what you're supposed to do. Nobody does that anymore. Now they manipulate their their scapula and their shoulder <laughs> and their front elbow and their hip and everything else, but they forget that the actual thing that moves the bat to the zone is your hands. Imagine that. Well, you know, I never, I never analyzed uh, the very few people that actually did handle the bat when they put the shift into play. I don't know whether they just played those guys straight up or whether they also played those guys with the shift. But I do know that if Wade Boggs and Rod Carew and a lot of guys that we know were playing in the shift era, they might have hit 400 for sure. I actually watched witness something that was really entertaining to me that uh, the Baltimore Orioles really struggled when I was a coach with the Boston Red Sox and Mookie Betts was becoming Mookie Betts and the player that he is today. 
I watched Baltimore because Mookie would inevitably hit like three or four home runs against them almost every series. And sometimes three in one game. So they started shifting him because they thought he was just a dead pull. So a couple of games they started shifting as a second baseman shifted over behind second base and, they, and Mookie just bounced a couple of balls to the right side of the field, stole second base, scored on a base hit. And he looked in at the dugout, looked at Buck Showalter and like, hey, he's shrugging his shoulders like, if you're going to give it to me, I'm going to take it. Right. Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah. and, and people just, people just, it, it astonishes me that people just don't have that thought process. Like, could you, if you have the ability to manipulate the barrel and to use, utilize your hands to hit the baseball, then there's no reason why you can't wait just a touch longer and make late contact and, and punch a ball to the right side of the field. It's just, if it's a matter of whether you want to or have worked on it, and if you haven't, and no hitting guys or very few hitting guys work on this, um, actually handling the barrel and utilizing it as a weapon instead of utilizing it as something that you're trying to launch with. Well, you know, I think, you know, so many of these kids come out of amateur baseball and that analytics, all that stuff is only ingrained with them since freaking Little League. That is and correct. And now they get here and they just, they just jump on it. They want to continue that. You know they don't they don't want to learn anything new that might make sense. Can you, you know, imagine? Can you, can you imagine not? All you got to do is watch Freddie Freeman talk about hitting. There's YouTube stuff on that. Watch Miguel Cabrera talk about hitting. Now these are the best players and hitters in the on the planet on the planet ever. Watch Robert or, or uh, watch Albert Pujols do a video about and talk about hitting. And you can, you, or even stuff that Tony Gwynn used to teach. I mean, all you got to do is think about, okay, these are the best players, current and past players who have ever hit, who have ever taken the barrel to the ball. If and Why wouldn't you listen to them? Why wouldn't you have them as your mentors? Explain that to me. Well, you know, it's funny. I've told this story on another broadcast. I, I coached with the Marlins and Cabrera, Cabrera was on the team and, and uh, I was sitting with the catcher between innings and we just had a guy, he, the, the pitches were all in the exact same area and the guy hit a, they just stayed away, stayed away, stayed away. And, you know, our scouting report was periodically go in, especially if you're ahead in the count, go in on the guy, then you can go back out there, but you got to go in on him. And uh, the guy fouled off about four pitches. It was a ball, a ball, another pitch away, and a guy hit a double to right center. So between innings, I'm talking to the catcher about it, and I go, I said, these guys are major league hitters. You think they're not going to adjust? That's why we move the ball in. We don't stay in one area. And Cabrera walks by, and he goes, amen. You got that right. You know, and I walked around, and I kind of looked at the guy. Like, Cabrera put a stamp on it for me. You know, like, hey. You stay in one area on me, I'll kill you, you know, and it made a good point. But those points aren't being made anymore, and even to pitchers, enough to uh, the value of moving the ball. Yeah, because all they think about is, well, you know, I, I have one strength, and this is the strength I'm going to work on and continue to, instead of being able to, to actually master your craft. And to put yourself, your body in a position to make pitches in certain quadrant, quadrants of the zone. That is very, that's much less. No one, 
All that's a reason why they have all that edutronics and all the, you know, all those, uh, those machines is to just measure the spin rates and the velocities instead of measuring where they're throwing it on or off right. the plate. <laughs> and, the, and, and the other one that's so big is shape, you know, it's like oh, yeah. the breaking ball it. needs to be wider. No, it doesn't. It needs to be sharper later. It has to have depth so that the hitter hits the top of the ball. Instead Correct. of throwing flat sweepers <laughs> when you make a yeah. mistake. Yeah, sweeper. They, I, I would think the sweeper. The only guys that threw sweepers were like sidearm guys right. back when I played. Right. Yeah, it's, it's just a strange – it's just a different speed on a breaking ball and different angle, whatever. Yeah, to me, make up to me, yeah, to me, listen, to me it's about having the ability to, to command at least – as a starting pitcher, at least two pitches – uh, and probably three now in the major leagues. And if you can do that with any kind of consistency, if you can utilize the quadrants, you can have you can be effective. Simple. But, yeah, that's you know something that I you know noticed. You know, Tampa does a nice job with taking the pitchers that they have and getting them to execute what they can do. Yes, which is such a novel idea. Okay, you have a good curveball, and you have a. a uh, 55 to 60, a little bit above average fastball. Let's command that and be able to throw your curveball for strikes. And you're going to be a really good pitcher for us. Imagine <laughs> being, that. Able to, to, being able to execute. There's, you, yeah. you know, there's no emphasis on execution and focus and reading a swing and making the right pitch and the right sequence. As you had so, talked about earlier, Ruben, just, you know, hitting his timing and, Pitching is disrupting the time, basically. Well, it's simpler to just try to outstuff the guy. Yeah. Like like Ruben said, you know, they, they just do the only thing they're good at, and they don't want to learn anything or command anything. They just want to stuff everything. And that's, that's too many baseball pitchers are that way in today's world. I've got, la- I've got one last question myself, and that is that, you know, you were born in a baseball family and spent your entire life in the game. What advice would you have for a young guy, whether he's on his way, he wants to get into professional baseball, but he's, uh, you know, he could be a good player or he could just be somebody that wants to get in on any capacity. What, you know, what advice do you have for them? I mean, I always believed in like uh, wanting to hire people who have a lot of passion about it. If you have a real love for, for the game at whatever level, um, I, my, my thing is this, uh, don't be afraid to show your love for the game, your passion for the game. And, um, if you have a goal to be in baseball and professional level or whatever level, I think it's, um, and then you truly have a desire to do that, then, you know, do what you feel is, uh, you know, humanly possible to be able to achieve that goal. I always believed in people being aggressive, um, you know, I, I think about I think about the uh, the process that my kids went through to go to college, and the admissions process, and and demonstrated interest is the what was the phrase that I heard a lot of, like if my kid wanted to go to Wake Forest or my kid wanted to go to the University of Miami, I said, hey, show these people this is what you want to do. This is your goal. You want to be here and show them that you have the great a great passion and desire to do that. And I think if people see that, that people notice that, um, I think that is uh, a, a great way of getting your foot in the door. And then 
making the best of it when you do. Well, you know, it, you know, having said that, I know a lot of NFL guys that are head coaches, you go back in their careers and they were drivers for the coaching staff. They were, you know, they helped out in the clubhouse, but they had a passion. They end up being NFL coaches. Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't matter how you get the, your foot in the door. I mean, people ask me all the time, well, I, you know, I want to be a GM. Okay. Everybody wants to be a GM. Um, but, 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 but the reality of it is, um, you got to get yourself in the door and it's, a, it's a pro and sometimes it's a process like, and it's, there's nothing wrong with you being able to like learn what it is to be a ticket salesman and then a marketing person. And then, you know, somebody on the PR department and it doesn't really matter because you can get there in a variety of ways in this day and age. I mean, my, some of my greatest mentors, Ed Wade was started off in the PR department. Uh, David Montgomery started off in the ticket office. He became a president of the Phillies and CEO. Uh, Ed Wade was a great GM for two uh, very, very fine organizations. So it's it's a matter of getting your foot in the door, grinding it out, outworking somebody, showing your passion for something, and then moving forward. I think it's a great answer. Uh, guys, we've kept Ruben for all, um, an hour and 10 minutes here, and we appreciate all his time. Any any last questions for him? I've got two quick ones I want to throw in there. I think the audience would appreciate. Okay, Dave, you go, and then I got one last one. Okay, we'll, we'll flip-flop. So the okay. first one I want, the um, we have about 43,000-plus subscribers, and I wanted you to be able to share with them a little bit of the work you're doing with the Richie Ashburn and Harry Callis Foundation, you being the co-founder. What kind of work are you doing with them, and how can we support you? Yeah, so our co-founder, uh, I'm a co-founder along with Richie Ashburn, uh, Rick Miller, my brother, David. Um, you know, basically, Richie Ashburn's passion was, uh, you know, providing baseball and having baseball be an out outlet, particularly for inner city kids. And so we provide camps for kids in the inner city anywhere in this Philadelphia area, somewhere around. Uh, uh, we probably affect somewhere between uh uh, 1,200 to 1,800, depending on the year, kids in the inner city and give them an opportunity to go to camps that are taught by kids from Penn Charter, which was my high school. And, um, you know, we spend, uh, you know, a couple of days with them and give them a, a T-shirt and hats and stuff like that. But more importantly, get them exposed to baseball because the exposure to baseball in the inner city is not that great. We have surrounding areas also not just the inner city, but uh, we do camps for that. We also provide certain scholarships for certain kids who, uh, who um, have some needs. Um, so we've had opportunities to do that. So the, the way to support is uh, the, it's the uh, Ashburn Callis foundation.org. I believe it is off the top of my head. You can go online. We've uh, we have like a yearly um you can go online and uh, uh, on that, and I can give you more information about that if you'd like it. Um, but also, um, we have like a yearly, either a dinner or a golf outing that um, that uh, we have to, to raise some money and to provide uh, these camps for these kids. Yeah, we'd love to support it. We'll put it in the show notes and whatever information you want to send me, I'll make sure we put it out there. To our audience, so we can connect our audience with what you're doing. I think it's a great thing. Will, did you want to go with your question? Then I'll I'll end yeah. it with the one I had. Yeah, yeah, Ruben. Just you know, maybe talk a little bit about. Uh, I know how big of an impact your brother David has made and or still making the stuff that you guys are doing uh, with uh, lessons and camps and uh, things like that in the Philadelphia area because. Uh, 
Uh, there's a lot of people stealing money, and I know you guys aren't. Yeah, I remember my brother's one of those guys that uh, that really hasn't monetized that whole process. In fact, he's probably put <laughs> taken a lot of money out of his pocket to get it going and, and to and to continue it. But he's part of the Philly Bandits, and he basically is the founder of the Philly Bandits, one of the best baseball organizations in this area. I think uh, they're teaching kids from 13 to 18 how to play baseball the right way how to respect their coaches. And my, and my brother's goal is to try to give these kids opportunities to move forward in baseball, whether it's a Division three club uh, school or Division one, or maybe even in a rare occasion to get a chance to get signed to get ex- some exposure. Um, so, I mean, Nolan Jones is a guy who graduated from, from, uh, from that organization. He's now playing for the Rockies and doing pretty well. Yeah, he's as you know, nice. he's done yep. a nice, done a nice job. Came, came over from the Cleveland Indians. Um, I, you know, it, it's, it, it's something that my dad has always been passionate about and yeah. it's something that's really important to us is that not only do they play uh, baseball with the respect of the game, but they play the game the right way. And that's yeah. uh, something that my brothers and all the volunteers who are coaches uh, try to do. I think it's uh, ages 13 to 19, I believe that are being uh, that he, he has different teams for that's one. And Amaro Sports um, is something that uh, we've developed uh, as well, uh, my brother and I. And, and it's really a mentorship whereby we do create some um, seminars and some other things, you know, basically just trying to help parents with the whole process of, of uh, developing their kids. And if they have the passion to move forward, There's, it's a really difficult thing to, to manage these days. Because, um, you know, there's so many, uh, so much misinformation about uh, how, how to, you know, try to get your path going towards, you know, being either a, a JV player or a varsity player, or even perhaps a collegiate player. And, and my brother has so many connections in that area that uh, we like to try to mentor, mentor some kids through that process and parents as well. That's hugely important. I, I think Major League Baseball should be doing that as an industry to educate the parents and the kids that truly have a passion for the game so that you, you know, you know, and, and times are tough. You know, if you're going to spend some money for your child, spend it in the right places. Yep. Totally uh, agree. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of websites stealing money from some people and I think it's important for them to, to be informed properly rather than uh, being, be informed by people who are trying to make a buck. Awesome. Yep. Yeah. That's a good, good question. Well, Ruben Will suggested that you and I connect offline too. We run a program like that called one-on-one where we've helped 600 plus kids get scholarships to college, either through basketball or baseball in the last four years through mentoring. We're in 46 countries, but also through the actual teaching them the game. So I, I love what you're doing. Keep, keep rolling. I know it's, it gets frustrating. I'm sure sometimes with the misinformation, but you'll reach the right ears and the parents are the right people to educate. They need to get educated on this stuff. I've got a fun question to end it with and, and hope you're okay with it. But um, what, what's your relationship with the Goldbergs, the TV <laughs> Well, I mean, the original Goldberg, uh, who, who was a creator, Adam Goldberg, who was a creator of the show, was um, probably about eight or nine years behind me, maybe a little less, at Penn Charter. And he sort of based that that uh, that show on on you know I guess Penn Charter and his his lifetime growing up in the in the Philadelphia area, 
And um, I was really fortunate. I was sitting in my locker in spring training. First time I was re re uh, putting on my uniform in uh, in spring training in Fort Myers with the Boston Red Sox. And I got an email saying, you know, can we use can we use your likeness in this show? So I guess they ended up uh, putting my name or my person as a fictitious, semi fictitious element of the show and then I ended up being yeah I guess ended up being sort of a mainstay in the show and every time they referred to me as Ruben Amaro Jr. for some reason but but the interesting thing about two interesting things about that was that believe it or not the person who actually played me in the show was a guy named a kid named Nico Wardado. Nico Wardado was the son of the ever famous everyday Eddie Wardado who was the closer for the Seattle Mariners and the Minnesota Twins for a while. Um, So that's pretty ironic. But uh, I got a chance to meet him in Boston later on that year. And the fact that his son was, was was an actor and playing me in the show, that was kind of cool. Yeah. And the other and the other part uh, that I thought was really moving for me was that when my father passed away um, uh, about six years ago, uh, Adam reached out to me personally and asked if I had interest in uh, playing my dad uh, in a cameo as my father in the show, and I actually ended up playing in a couple of uh, in a couple of of the episodes one was i think it was called fiddler on the roof episode and the other was the golden girls i believe where i got an opportunity to be on the set and to be with the actors and to have a couple of lines and stuff like that kind of nerve-wracking but it was fun and it was really cool that adam would uh would would allow me to do that really neat that's awesome that's a great story well guys uh, that was a ruben great interview we appreciate you giving we put you in extra innings here today, about 30 minutes, and we appreciate you you bringing it today. Our audience of 43,000 plus, 73 countries are going to eat this up. Um, make sure our audience supports the foundation that we spoke about and the work that, that Ruben and his brothers are doing in Philadelphia. Anything we can do to help, you just let us know. We'll plug it on our network. Mark and Will, of course, I, I get tired of saying this, but great interview. I can't wait you guys have a bad one, so I, I can say, eh. But uh, you guys bring it every week. Uh, great guests, and the part I love about your guests is there's there's a strong personal relationship between you and your guests and you guys have a sense of reverence for those you've come across in the game. And I think our audience, that's part of why they love your show is that you have uh, built a lifetime of baseball and relationships. So thank you so much for bringing that to the network. We appreciate you. So, but uh, with that episode 253 in the books, real voices of the game, this is a day at the yard. I think I heard the word common sense used a couple times in this, in this show, but day at the yard, common sense pitching with Wiley and Will. Great episode guys. We appreciate you so much. Great job, Ruben. Thanks for being with you guys. Thanks so much for coming on, Ruben. Enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Stay on. You got to stay on, though.